Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for Alberta on September 22nd, 2021. We are live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL to ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. We are hopeful that this will increase the accessibility of our briefings for all Albertans. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavor to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta and take questions from the media. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 as possible. Today we are going to look at schools and COVID-19 in younger Albertans. We will begin today with some presentations and discussions on how COVID-19 has been impacting Alberta schools, students and families since classrooms opened this fall, and what rising infection numbers may mean for the young inhabitants of Alberta, after which we will take questions from the media and public to try and help parents, teachers, and young people navigate the ongoing crisis. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us today for this rescheduled broadcast. Dr. Vipond will be starting things off with an update on COVID-19 in Alberta. Dr. Vipond? Hey guys, um, sounds okay, I hope. Um, then you can throw up the slideshow there, Michelle. Um, we'll just go right into the numbers here. So our cases today, you can see a pretty substantial drop, actually 16.4% drop from last week's um, uh, 1641. Uh, the uh, Next slide, please. The, the seven-day average is up slightly at 5%, but you can see it's kind of uh, at the very end there, it's kind of flattening out. Um, so there's definitely some changes going on in the numbers. Uh, the only thing I've really been able to really attribute this to is uh, just over two weeks ago, we had the mask mandate uh, come into play around the province. Um, I don't believe that the $100 incentive for vaccines, obviously it, it wouldn't have had the um, the time to have worked. You know, we need to have two vaccines in order to be protected against Delta. And also I'm not a big believer that the 10 o'clock liquor curfew is making this difference. So the only thing I could really imagine is, is that uh, the mask mandate is working. And we're definitely seeing the majority of this drop, as you'll see later on in Calgary and Edmonton. So this is definitely predominantly an urban phenomenon. And we're just such so much bigger. Next slide, please. And this is the positivity still curving down as well now at 9.06%. Um, that's compared to last week's 10 point. I believe I said wrote six one there. Next slide, please. Okay, here's where things get really messy. Um, really big increases, about uh, average of about twenty per day over the last four days. Um, so Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, uh, up twenty seventeen, twenty seven, and seventeen, and now we're at eight hundred and ten. Um, I'll just point out um, uh, that uh, the, the these numbers always get revised. And so I always kind of go back a few days before I trust anything. So from Saturday to Saturday, if we trust Saturdays as a relatively good number, we're looking at a 28% increase of inpatients from 593 to 759. 
yesterday's increase was 27%, calculated to be 27%, and um, on Monday it was 30%. So still aggressive growth in our inpatients week over week. Uh, Next slide, please. These are the ICUs. We had a little dip, uh, not really clear what that dip was over the weekend, but we're aggressively rising again. Um, And so we had a plus nine to 230 today. This is a new record. In fact, both of these, all of these are new records. Inpatients, new record. Um, Total hospitalizations, new record. And ICU, new record for the entire pandemic, not just for the the fourth um, uh, intentionally cruel wave. I, I want to give a thanks out to Alberta Girl, who uh, um, uh, Twitter handle aggress- uh, correctly pointed out that when we're seeing this n- net increase of ICU from uh, to, to 2.30, plus 9 to 2.30, that's actually net. So what's happened is we've actually had 15 uh, new patients come in overnight, um, and six patients have either been discharged from the ICU or have passed away. So it's really important to recognize that that 15 is one of the really important numbers. It's not um, that there's a net increase or a gross increase of nine. It's a net increase and a, and a, um, a gross increase of 15. Next slide, please. And this is just a, a slide to show how much worse from a hospitalization and ICU perspective this is. Um, and if, if you think back, I don't have this slide, that next but if you go back and you can go whenever on twitter you can go back to the cases per day you don't have to michelle i'm just uh, just talking here um but our cases per day have started to max out well below previous peaks and yet our hospitalization and icu rates um, are much much higher than previous waves um and it's interesting to think of what that might be from it could be that delta is just that much more virulent and so you get worse disease from that from that infection. Um, the other possibility is, um, is we're really undercounting our community cases. And if we're really, uh, uh, these numbers, the hospitalizations and, and ICU are pretty hard numbers. Um, you know, they're, they're real and the cases per day are really reflective of how well you're testing. And so in the previous waves, we'd had a lot more asymptomatic testing. We're not doing that this time. So um, we're really, we may really be undercounting the only thing that kind of argues against that is those percent uh, positivities, which are still pretty reasonable and similar to previous. Um, you can go to the next slide, please. Uh, this is just uh, looking at the um, ages of infections and that little green line that's going way off the top of your of your screen there. That's the um, five to 11 age. So these are kids in school um, who are getting the infection. And they, uh, this is a new record for them. They're by far the biggest group here. Really just started right after school started. Do not let anyone tell you that schools do not promote transmission in the community. I've heard this from Dr. Hinshaw. She has said that um, school spread is just reflective of community spread. That is not correct. School spread, as any parent knows, kids get sick in school. They're enclosed in a box for eight hours a day. Um, with a bunch of other snotty-nosed kids. And there's very few um, situations in society where that's the case, uh, where you would see, you know, it's so easy to transmit. Um, and then the next uh, highest level there is the is the uh, 12 to 19. Uh, and it, they're starting to curve down, which is reassuring. I'm really worried about those 5 to 11s. And uh, the, that's why we're here today. That's why we're talking. Um, next slide, please. 
And this is just geographically, you can see for whatever reason, the last 24 hours, every single curve in the province dropped at the same time. I'm not sure what the heck's going on there. It's, it's, it's unusual and I'm, I'm not sure what to make of it. Um, it, it, it would suggest that maybe this really low number yesterday was spurious and not, not indicative. Maybe, maybe election. Um, I don't know. Next slide, please. Um, all right. Um, this is the saddest slide I will present. I just want to take a moment um, to say of the 20 deaths that were reported today, we have our first pediatric death. Uh, it's somebody in the central zone. And um, this is uh, a tragic moment for our society um, because it didn't have to be this way. And, and this person who otherwise would have had a good life um, died because they lived in Alberta. And I'm so sorry to the parents and the friends and family of this person. Next slide, please. I think that's it, actually. Um, I'm going to turn it over to the group. Um, I just want to say um, I'm happy to stay for the questions at the end. I have to start work at 5 o'clock. But um, this government, our chief medical officer of health, has put in policies that has accelerated transmission in the schools. We have eliminated contact tracing in schools. We have eliminated asymptomatic testing of close contacts in schools. We have gotten rid of parental notification of positive cases so that parents can't make adequate risk assessments for their children. And just yesterday, they announced that they are going to be making exceptions for vaccine passports um, for kids and activities. And I think we still have not had a single moment of accountability for any of our political leaders, and that includes Dr. Hinshaw. And this isn't going to be fixed until we have accountability for the problems. So I'm going to turn it back over to you, Michelle. Thank you very much, Dr. Vipond. I would like to bring Dr. Lee into the conversation to update us with some more specifics on outbreaks and what um, support our students has been hearing from parents this fall. Dr. Lee. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, so today we will do a more detailed overview of what's happening on the ground in Alberta K-12 schools. Support Our Students have been trying to compile whatever we can get, uh, which we know is only a fraction of what's actually out there in terms of case information and exposure uh, in all the over 60 school boards. So if we can throw up my slides, I can just get right into it here. Thank you, Chad. Uh, those are Goja slides, I think. So just to recap what's been happening has not changed in terms of public health support for schools. There is virtually none compared to what we had last year. So AHS is still not uh, telling any schools about positive case tests that come through uh, their uh, testing system. Schools are have not been obligated since the beginning of this year to share positive cases with parents in the school community. Uh, about potential exposures. Um, some divisions are sharing with their classrooms if there are self-reports, if parents decide to tell the schools 
But we've also heard in some uh, areas, there is, um, I guess, recommendation or pressure for teachers to not share information to withhold it in for the sake of privacy. So this happened last year is this over leaning into, you know, the idea that you have to hide cases because of privacy, but but there are ways to be transparent without giving identifying information that that um, can adversely affect the individual. There is a balance here of making sure the community is aware and to assess their risk, like Dr. Vaithan said. But what we're seeing is a fall of secrecy and uh, exposure information is a, a void. There's a void of information. And of course, due to that, we don't actually know any quantifiable statistics about school transmission um, as the data severely lacking. Next slide, please. So SOS has received at least uh, 82 outbreak letters from AHS since the beginning of the school year. So that is obviously not comprehensive. We know there's more out there that just haven't been sent to us. These letters basically say that an investigation has been opened in the school because the school reported 10% or greater absenteeism. So their school population um, has over 10% absence due to illness. So there is some questioning around the respiratory illness part of this letter because some zones will divulge where there was COVID specific and some zones are not saying anything. So it's inconsistent across the board, but we do know that these letters are, are going to some schools. So from our count, at least 2,932 absentees, uh, at the very least, at the minimum, uh, have reported being away from school based on the 10% threshold. Of course, this number is probably greater because this is just a threshold that um, triggers this letter. And we calculate this based on the total enrollment numbers from last year. So knowing this year more students went back to in-person, of course, we would anticipate this approximation is conservative uh, by all means. So what we do know is that when an investigation opens, there's actually no further guidance. So nothing coming from public health about quarantining any cohorts or additional measures. So really it's just a blanket informative process and, and nothing actionable uh, in terms of what parents can do to continue to keep their child safe in light of the information that comes up. Next slide, please. And this is a list of just all the schools and you can see that it's across all the zones. There aren't, you know, a specific place that we've only been receiving these letters. So this is a province-wide problem. Next slide, please. And just, uh, just replicating sort of what uh, Dr. Vipon was showing. This is Aaron Toomes graph of active cases uh, by date. This was as of yesterday uh, for ages five to 19. And we see we are approaching the peak from the third wave quite rapidly, of course, due to schools being open. Next slide. Dr. Vipon already shared this slide and condolences condolences to the pediatric uh, death 
that occurred yesterday, reported today. Again, this is all this was all avoidable. We needed to have transparency and honesty about transmission in children from the beginning. And this government has been very adamant that the risk is minimal and the rhetoric that children are not affected has been dangerous and they are continuing to allow this virus to spread and not do anything to help mitigate. Next slide, please. So last Friday, the largest school board in Western Canada, the Calgary Board of Education, sent a letter to the province uh, urging the province to reinstate public health contact tracing, providing rapid testing kits for schools and mandating, the vac mandating vaccines for workers in the education sector. Uh, CBU reported that over 350 self-reports have occurred linked to over 120 CBE schools. And today we saw a letter similar, with similar asks come out from the Edmonton Public School Board. And so this is an opportunity for parents that are watching, put pressure on your school boards to speak in unison with these two Metro boards. Uh, I'm talking rural boards as well, North, South, Central Zone. The province needs to hear from those that are administrating schools and seeing what's happening on the ground that the province needs to step in. Uh, school boards are not equipped to be public health officials and having this downloaded onto them is creating a patchwork of inconsistency and they need to hear a coherent message from the school boards. Next slide, please. And so for anyone that wants to see just a sample of what we've been receiving, you can go to our website and we will continue to do our best, but of course we aren't public health officials either. This is just as a representation of what is unfolding uh, in as the crisis that is in schools. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Lee. I would now like to bring another one of our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing coalition members, Dr. Goja Gasparovic, to share some additional information on the epidemic curve. Hello. Hello. Good afternoon. Thank you, Michelle, for introduction. Thank you for watching us. So first of all, I will talk about um, how fast COVID spreads in context of kids and schools. Uh, it's the application, basically, of what Dr. Vipant and Dr. Lee already said. So kids, the spread in kids, now, now kids are the group in which the COVID grows the fastest now, uh, from zero in the age group of zero to 19, uh, the growth rate has doubling time of 14 days. In other groups, it's, it's between 20 and 50 days. So it's far by far the fastest one. And also it has the highest case incidence rate. So case, case incidence rate tells how many new cases we have per 100,000 people in the group. So that's that's the largest. Uh, also, what is very important that kids under 12 are 100% not vaccinated, so they don't have any personal shield against infection. Uh, and among group kids that are older than 12, 30% are like 27% are not vaccinated. So also 30% of them don't have personal shield. Next slide, please. 
And here, what does it mean? Like whenever people talk about, oh, COVID is not dangerous for kids, they throw at people the small numbers, like, oh, death is all, only about 0.00048%. But if many kids get infected, those small percentages become really big numbers. And here's the translation of those numbers made by Jeff Kavanagh uh, on the by using methodology of Professor Professor David Fisman from Ontario. So among our all unvaccinated kids under 12, if COVID has 70% attack rate, if basically if the virus spreads freely among them and 70% of them will get infected, it will translate to 437 hospitalizations almost 40 kids will end in ICU and around two will die. And 20 to 60,000 of them will develop a long COVID. But also these calculations were made for previous variants. Delta, data from Ontario show that Delta is 2.7 times worse in terms of hospitalizations of kids. So we can expect for kids infected, if 70% of kids will get infected with Delta, then 1,200 of them will end up in a hospital. We don't know yet for Canada, we don't have data on critical illness, deaths and long COVID with Delta, and I hope we will never have them. So I hope we won't, we stop infecting kids with COVID. Um, so next slide, please. Here's, this graph shows it's a timeline and it shows uh, daily new cases in Alberta over time, uh, starting last summer. And we see that each time we managed to bend the curve, we had in-person schools closed. Uh, there is also a lot of saying in Alberta that uh, by public health officials that, that in Alberta, schools don't contribute strongly to the spread and or don't drive the transmission, but we don't have surveillance data. In places when there was surveillance data or more granular analysis done, those places like in Ontario, Ontario data and uh, Quebec data show that actually schools drive the spread over there, drive the, are first. Like in Ontario, first kids, school kids get infected, especially that was true in the second wave, and then the community then the community cases will start appearing. So I, I don't know why in Alberta it should be different. But anyway, each time we closed the schools, cases started to go down. Also, when we reopened in-person schools and patio dining on May 20, 25th, then the spread rate increased by 20%, both of Delta and origin and, and previous strains. So there is input from, from the spread of schools into the overall spread. And what is most important is that like each time, so we never managed to bend the curve without closing in-person schools. And today is not the time to experiment, to check, oh, maybe if we don't close in-person schools, this time we bend the curve without it. And also I'm not aware of any jurisdiction, but maybe it exists, just I'm not aware that managed to sharply bend the curve without closing in-person schools. Also, schools were closed so many, so we had so many interruptions in schools. Like we had schools closed because of the virus. We had schools closed in March last year, then in winter, then in spring. 
adding to this many interruptions because of the virus that we have, there were outbreaks and kids had to stay at home again. So basically, if we have the virus, we cannot have normal schools. We really need, if we want to have functional in-person schooling and, and normal uninterrupted education for our children, we need to eliminate the virus from our community. There's no other way. Uh, next slide, please. And it's possible to eliminate virus. New Zealand just some days ago managed to bend, bend the curve, Delta, uh, and they have rapid de decline, halving every six to nine days. And they have smaller, they have only less than 30, like when they bend the curve, less than 30% people were vaccinated, were fully vaccinated in, in New Zealand. So we are able, if, if we do the same as they did, we are able to reduce the spread. And even if we, if we would go full lockdown like New Zealand, we could do it faster than them. So basically in less than seven weeks, we could eliminate the virus in, in, in Alberta. If we go a little bit slower, so we will have our regular shutdown, we can eliminate virus in Alberta in mid-December, gen early January. So basically it's possible. And if we do it, we can have an interrupted education going forward. If we want to do it, probably we'll have fifth wave, sixth wave. And we have this conversation about schools again and again and again. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Gasparov. It's, it is always uh, exceptionally enlightening to get to have you with us. Um, I'm going to bring back in those who spoke with us moments before. Oh, Dr. Vipond may be currently engaged in something, but he will reappear. There we go. And I am very um, pleased to get to introduce a first-time contributor to the Protector Province Alberta briefings, um, Bridget Sterling, a PhD student in the University of Alberta's Department of Educational Policy Studies, where her research focuses on children's rights and the politics of childhood in Alberta, educational law and policy. Um, she's recently been working on childhood and COVID-19 policies in schools, and she is the soon-to-be former Ward G trustee on the Edmonton Public School Board and is here today as a concerned citizen with an educational policy lens not speaking on behalf of the EBSP. And our returning contributors for our conversation today are Dr. Asadi, I'm just going to pop you in as well, um, who is an infectious disease physician and a master of public health, as well as Dr. Lada, who is a pediatrician and a master of public health as well. Thank you all so very much for joining us today. To kick off our conversation, we are going to start with a question from Dylan Short with Post Media. Dylan, are you there? Hello. Yes, I am. Is it okay if I keep my camera off for the time being? Oh, yeah, that's just fine. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for allowing me to ask uh, a question here. I have a few, but I'm not sure if there's other media on the line, so I'll just ask one to start. And I apologize, it's a bit off topic today but um for, for one of the doctors maybe i was hoping to get a sort of sense of what you're seeing day to day within the hospitals right now obviously we've broken a thousand patients with covid19 for the first time today and as you all 
had spoken about, there was the, the first pediatric case, an 18 year old in the central area. So I guess just, you know, go, I want to go a little bit beyond the numbers there and see if any of you have any comments on, on what, what it actually looks like on the ground with, with so many cases, uh, you know, over a thousand for the first time. Thank you. Um, I'm probably the person seeing patients most head to head. Um, and I'm still doing shifts in the eMERGE. Um, yeah, I mean, the, there, there's a lot of um, sick COVID and there's a lot of people that aren't COVID that are still coming into the eMERGE sick. Um, probably the most worrisome thing is we've seen trends across the province where um, our numbers overall are going down. We saw this last in the first day in April 2020. Uh, May, March and April 2020. Um, and uh, we're not entirely sure why people are just being selfless and deciding not to come in um, because they, uh, they are worried that the system's overwhelmed or, or if they're worried about uh, um, the transmission in hospitals. Um, this is really worrisome because we know in that period of time, we missed a lot of really severe disease, either undiagnosed cancers, heart attacks, strokes, other acute illnesses. And there was significant morbidity mortality associated with that outside of um, just COVID infections. So it's really important that uh, patients who are unwell continue to come into the hospital. Um, we will take care of you. And um, uh, this is the right place to be if you have an emergency. Would you like to ask a follow-up, Dylan? Yeah, sure. I guess... You know, speaking of children, um, obviously a, a bit of a topic of the day today, of course. Um, you know, are we worried that with, you know, the cases increasing so much, we know that this usually leads to hospitalizations, but I guess among children, among young people, are we worried that they might start to take up hospital beds more so than we've seen in the past? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think Dr. Gasparowicz's slides spoke to this, but the issue is when we allow COVID-19 to freely circulate amongst our um, amongst our child populations, then inevitably we see larger numbers that will be hospitalized. And we did see this in the third wave. Um, so larger numbers that will be hospitalized and will have severe illness. Um, and of those that are, are hospitalized in Alberta, we've seen about a 30 to 40% rate of ICU admissions from those from those children um, that are hospitalized. So certainly we expect to see an increase in severe illness, severe pneumonia, um, and MIS-C, so multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which is specific to the pediatric population. Um, and, and that is what we are um, anticipating and, and really anxious about. And that's why it's so important that community transmission stays low. Um, so that schools can remain open and community transmission right now is just rampant. Um, so that is certainly a concern, but I just also want to point out that even though uh, we're not necessarily seeing yet high numbers of pediatric hospitalizations, uh, pediatric care is already impacted because, um, for example, at the Alberta Children's Hospital in Calgary, 75% of pediatric surgeries have been cancelled. Um, these include surgeries that are um, extremely important for uh, child's health and development, including um, a patient with a brain tumor, for example. Um, and so the care of these children is 
is already being uh, negatively impacted. They're not getting high quality standard of care uh, because pediatric respiratory therapists and nurses have been redeployed to take care of adults with COVID. If I can add to that, I think we've constantly underestimated this virus throughout our pandemic response, and I fear that we're underestimating its impact on children as well, um, just because we haven't had the numbers of children that we're going to be seeing and that we're seeing now infected. We haven't seen a huge number of hospitalizations, but we're tempting fate by allowing all these children to get infected. Invariably, some of them will end up hospitalized and in the ICU, and um, we just keep underestimating. Thank you very much. Does that answer your question, Dr. Short? Anyone else like to add anything to that question? Oh, I said doctor instead of Dylan. Dylan, does that answer your question? Wow, you can tell that it's been a long week already and it's only Wednesday. It does, yes, thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us. So let's start with one of the big questions that we've been getting from a lot of the parents at home. Should folks be sending their tiny humans to school? This is this is such a hard question because the there's been a consistent pattern of this government downloading responsibility from themselves onto businesses. Um, onto school boards and now onto parents. And, you know, really who should be held accountable is the government. Um, and the government's job is to lead us out of this pandemic safely and with as few deaths and with as little suffering as possible. And that has not happened. Um, so, you know, school is essential for the intellectual, social, mental health and development of children. Um, and it should be the last to close in any circumstance. All other non-essential services and businesses should close prior to schools. Um, it shouldn't be a, a parent's burden to decide whether they want their child potentially exposed to um, a potentially serious illness or long COVID. Um, versus them having the essential uh, interaction and education they need to become um, healthy and happy functioning adults. Um, you know, should parents be sending their children to school? I think um, all schools are different. I think they have different policies. Um, we're seeing that across the province. Um, you know, school is important for their development. If, if your children are in a school that's small, that has a mask mandate, um, that has policies that that you feel comfortable with, you know, in the end, it's it's a risk versus benefit thing. And it's also uh, really relevant whether you have other options, because many people cannot uh, just keep their kids at home, even if they want to. Um, so so I think it's a, it's a very contentious subject, but it's a choice that parents shouldn't have to make. Bridget, I would love your thoughts on this. Yeah, I, I would agree. It's a It really depends on your circumstances. Um, one of the things that we do know from the data on young people um, in schools is that um, moving into online learning has very different effects on, on students, depending on both um, the age cohort they're in and um, to some extent the, the individual characteristics and um, developmental needs of the, the student, right? So, where we saw the biggest impact on students last year during the school shutdowns 
um, the, the greatest impact on learning was in the early grades. And that makes sense, right? Kids in that age group are doing a lot of play-based learning. Uh, the way they learn is um, they need a lot of interaction. And so we saw an impact on um, literacy and numeracy in those early grades. And that's where you see things coming like that targeted funding for, for the early years. There's a reason for that. It's those students who've seen the biggest impacts. If I had a child in that age group, my decision-making would be very different than if I had um, an older child um, in junior high or high school. Even then, in those cases, I would be looking at what's my child's capacity to engage in online or distance learning? Um, what's the family's ability to supervise? Uh, there's a lot of different characteristics. You know, I know uh, a child last year who was in grade one who did great learning online, but there are other kids who, who really struggle. Um, we've also seen a differentiated impact on older students who are um, uh, in more sort of precarious or complex situations. So um, kids whose families don't have the ability to be at home and supervise, um, sometimes high school students who are living independently, um, you know, those students in particular really, really struggled. And so it really depends on the context. Um, I would also look at your school's um, ability to cohort uh, and maintain distancing. Uh, what are the policies around masking? Uh, what are the practices around school ventilation? There's a lot of different questions that you should ask. Um, also, I recognize that many different school divisions are also offering different access to online learning. And so some students can transition into that. And for other students, there's just not um, the provision of support there. And so that may also affect parents' decision um, because it might require homeschooling. Dr. Lee, what have you been hearing through Support Our Students from parents and your colleagues around where folks are sitting this sort of just over three weeks almost into back to school? Are people feeling differently about whether or not their tiny humans should be remaining in their classrooms? Um, yeah, any, any thoughts that you have that you've heard on any of those? Yeah, so we've been hearing a lot of the same sentiments that have been echoed uh, in this panel is that it's an impossible situation. The government has absolutely forced this idea that there's a choice um, that parents should be able to make and it is impossible to make considering that children have taken the brunt of this pandemic for 18 months already. This is not March 2020. This is now September 2021. Um, some parents did online last year. Lots of parents did online last year because there were second and third waves. You know, cases were not mitigated in those situations. And here we are again. So if you look at the historical factors is that families in Alberta are burnt out. Uh, from multiple angles. So holistically looking at the bigger picture is that there is a different sentiment this year is that parents really banked on having safe schools because of how much that we had to put in already in this pandemic that was very much mismanaged by the province. And so considering that you have hockey stadiums that are opening to 100% capacity, I don't think that it's right to say that students once again have to take another hit um, as a whole because of mismanagement of this Delta wave. And what it really comes down to is understanding not everyone can make that choice now. This is an equity issue, 100%. Schools, public schools especially, are supposed to have 
you know, a safe environment for every student that comes in in Alberta. And the government has completely abdicated that, uh, as we've seen over and over again. So I'm hearing the same is that this is not really a choice um, in terms of, you know, I have the luxury of, of keeping kids at home. And it's a point of anxiety for parents that they live it every day is like carrying this burden potentially that their child could be infected, but knowing that they are going to school because they need to, you know, children have all those needs that need to be met in a school environment. And it was a hundred percent the government's responsibility to ensure that was available. Thank you very much, Dr. Lee. Before I move into my next question, I just want to acknowledge that we are having some issues with our ASL. Um, if we do not get them resolved, please be assured that we will upload an ASL version of this panel in this as soon as possible. Um, this is probably a medical question for our medical friends. Is are we have there been any studies or even are you guys noticing on the ground whether or not Delta is worse in tiny humans? Okay, I just take it from epidemiological standpoint. So in Ontario, there were studies done showing that Delta is worse for kids and the hospital. So hospitalization rate with Delta is 2.75 times higher than with previous variants. So the probability of getting hospitalized when a kid is infected with Delta versus with previous variants is almost three times higher. So that's all I know about, about it. Yes, I think uh, the Delta variant is worse for all comers. And so the same would likely apply to children. I don't know if I've seen any specific studies in pediatrics with Delta, but when you look at all of the age cohorts, Delta does seem to be more severe. And um, earlier on this year, we saw that in, in places that had very high rates of transmission, um, lower vaccination rates, no mitigations in place, their pediatric hospitals were becoming full. And so um, definitely it, it is possible and we do see children becoming very severely ill from this virus. Thank you very much. One of the questions that has appeared a couple of times in our stream so far during this conversation is around where a parent could get information on the air exchange and the HVAC in their school. Dr. Vipond. Um, yeah, and this is actually a good segue because I've, I've wanted to make this point. Um, this is the third wave where we've really, um, you know, talked about uh, the, the need for closing schools as, um, the, you know, initially with Mass for Canada. Um, and, and I continue to say that. I know it's controversial, but I, I really don't think we're going to beat this until we, we beat it in schools. But each time we've said, and if you're going to close it, use the time to COVID-proof your schools. And what is COVID-proofing? It's making sure there's adequate ventilation, making sure there's adequate filtration in those places that don't have adequate ventilation. And, and let's be clear, even with... Um, uh, ventilation systems, filtration is just an added benefit. You don't lose, there's no danger to putting a filtration system in any room. Um, and and so the, the the best places, if you're an engineer or you, you work in the schools, the best places to look for this information is ASHRAE, which is A-S-H-R-A-E. I'm not going to pretend I know what the, uh, what the acronym stands for, but it's the, I think, American Standards of Refrigeration, Heating, 
and something something. Um, and and there are excellent guidelines there. And APEGA uh, has also has some really good guidelines on on filtration. APEGA is the Alberta um, Petroleum Engineering and Geophysicists Association, I think. APEGA um, also has a statement on this as well. So I would look to those as best practices. And then the final place I would look at was the CDC. Um, CDC also has a good set of information, a little bit easier to read um, for uh, school filtration and, and, and ventilation. For those of you working in schools and around schools, um, the follow-up to that, I think, from a lot of the parents is, who do they ask? Is that a type of question you can call your principal with? Yeah, there's been some policies um, put out by like some pushback at, at, for, from school boards. So really what the school boards need to do is get together and figure out how they're going to deal with this. Um, just blanket bans on filtration is, is, is uh, I think, very misguided. Uh, they should be looking to best practices. And then again, uh, ASHRAE would be best, best practices. CDC and APEGA would be all um, places to look for guidelines. And take those to your principals. Take those to your um, school uh, trustees, maybe uh, Ms. Sterling um, should weigh in on this too, because this seems to be a recurrent thing that I'm seeing in my Twitter feed. That was going to actually be my follow-up question was Dr. Lee speaking as an advocate and Bridget speaking as your own human. Um, any thoughts for parents on who they should ask? Yeah, and honestly, your school principal is not generally the right person to ask in this context they're not um they're not making the decisions on ventilation standards or um uh whether or not um filtration devices are allowed in schools uh those decisions are generally with most school divisions being made um under the authority of administration so it's outside the purview of trustees and um because trustees run on a, a policy governance model there's a limited ability of trustees to do much other than advocate which is certainly important um, but I think it's really important for people to be contacting their, their central school division, their superintendent's office, uh, and sharing this information there. Um, certainly school divisions I know are looking at ASHRAE standards, but unfortunately there's a lot of contradictory information also coming to them uh, in some ways through, from AHS itself. Um, when we look historically at the decisions that have made, been made around ventilation, if um, I've been doing some comparative work with policies uh, in other parts of the world, and we see ventilation standards uh, and conversations around ventilation and outdoor learning coming in uh, in places in Europe that are actually were often used as comparators for Alberta last year, uh, places like Denmark and the Netherlands. Um, and unfortunately, we're a year behind that, and we're still waiting for those standards to be brought in. And um, some of the large school divisions are also looking at other information and other guidance, um, but other school divisions don't have the resources to look to that. The other part is that school divisions have been continually given the, the, the message centrally um, that um, air filtration devices when used inappropriately can circulate um, circulate the virus further through a room and certainly there's a risk if they're not um, adequate devices if they're people are just using sort of you know the kind of filter you might use to clean odors out of the air there's a risk there but I think there there needs to be pressure put on to um, put in place a standard for those units and also to advocate for some funding for them because school divisions are really under equipped to pay for them. And one of the problems that I'm, I'm perceiving already is that 
families who can pay for these things and schools where there's lots of families who can pay for them are getting them donated uh, and lots of schools where they can't afford it often the schools where kids have the least ability to stay home and learn and do those sorts of things too don't have the access to it and so there's a financial resource thing going on when school divisions have already experienced deep budget cuts. Bridget, I've seen people say that even when parents have attempted to donate uh, HEPA filters, they've been denied the opportunity to do that. Um, do you, have you seen that? Um, are you aware of that? I am aware of that. Uh, and part of the problem there is the, the conflicting guidance that school divisions are getting around devices. And I think, um, concern about the limited capacity of um, principals on the ground to um, determine what's an appropriate device or isn't an appropriate device. Um, and I recognize that, that some groups of parents have purchased devices that are probably quite suitable. Um, but again, there's this, this problem with conflicting information and guidance coming through AHS guidance to schools and um, you know people who are making these decisions sort of trying to look to different authorities that are telling them different things and it, it becomes quite complicated. And then what, what policymakers tend to do is say, okay, we're just gonna say no because we don't know how to make a decision on this, right? Um, some school divisions are following the ASHRAE standards. Um, you know, there, there are school divisions across the province that are, you know, um, when they think in Edmonton, uh, I think all of the schools that would be in Edmonton public have mechanical ventilation and are operating them according to the ASHRAE standards. Um, but, um, you know, when it comes to room, room filtration and things like that, that's where I think a lot of the real bumps are coming for people. I, I think we've seen this a lot in that there's, I feel like there's a sense to make the situation overly complicated when really mm -hmm. filtration is not a particularly complicated thing that the science is very clear and the CDC guidelines around that are, are excellent and quite easy to follow. Um, and obviously the CDC is a very reputable source. And I, I feel like the same has happened around rapid testing in that that's an excellent option, an excellent tool that again has been made overly complicated and somehow um, school boards principals are afraid to use these tools because they think that they're not going to be using them properly. They're not going to be scientific about it when really they're very simple and essential mitigation tools that we're just leaving on the table. And this is where the risk aversion that comes about in, in education sort of tends to work in the wrong direction, I think, in this circumstance, because I think a lot of the time people who are making, you know, these decisions in schools are thinking about, um, you know, if you don't have clear guidance to act, you don't act. And I think that's that's a problem because we're in a circumstance where the evidence is sort of bumping things the other way. But, you know, there's a there, there becomes a fear, I think, in some cases around liability. Um, and then if you make a decision to allow something, there's a fear that that will make you more liable than if you don't do something. And I think it's the wrong way to make decisions in this kind of context, but it's it's very entrenched in the, in, in the culture of education itself. And they really desperately need leadership and guidance mm -hmm. from the province, from the top, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They, you know, it's really not fair, especially for smaller divisions. Um, you think about school divisions that only have, you know, three or 4,000 students, they don't have the staff and the resources to, to be going out and doing this research. They really depend on the provincial guidance. Um, and when that guidance isn't there, um, what you see is people falling back to what's ever in the provincial plan, and that's what they do.
thank you very much. Before we move on to our final question, so our second final question, um, we've been receiving a lot of comments around how to safely isolate your COVID positive child at home with other kids in the house and or other people. A number of folks have been commenting on being told to isolate themselves from their six-year-old, their seven-year-old, their five-year-old and are throwing up their hands with a lot of, how do I, I can't do that. My, they are my child and they are ill. Um, and so any advice that anyone has in terms of keeping the rest of the household safe, if someone does test positive for COVID, especially if they're a tiny human? I can start, maybe some other people can finish. Um, just remember COVID is airborne. So that means you really need to have um, good systems for decreasing the amount of aerosolized virus that the child is putting out there. Um, yeah, you need to interact with your child. That is that is absolutely essential. Um, you can wear a mask. You can wear a, as best fitting a mask as possible. Um, if I were in this situation, I'd probably be running my H, my HVAC fan with a HEPA filter in it at all times. So basically, most furnaces have the ability to just turn on the fan so that the air circulates through that. And if the weather allows, that'd be a good day to have all the windows and doors open um, to try and, and, and increase the... Uh, the um, air circulation in that space. Um, and even though, uh, you know, COVID is airborne, um, think of it like cigarette smoke. So the closer you are to that person, um, the higher risk there, there is. So, um, you know, when you are in that close proximity, that's a good time to be wearing that mask when you're hugging and cuddling, still do that. Yeah, I, I think that's reasonable. I mean, you have to try your best, but it's not going to uh, be ideal. Um, and I think the other thing is making sure those that are eligible in the household for vaccination are vaccinated. So then um, we're protecting them that way. I would uh, add just to that COVID is airborne again, uh, that that the good way is to put a portable HEPA filter, air purifier in the room when the kid is. Like it can run all the time. So basically what you're doing, you're reducing the concentration of the virus in the air and open the windows, run this, run, run this cleaner and maybe separate non-infected kids from the infected kid. Uh, when I was sick and I suppose that I, I was suspecting that I had COVID, I, I didn't, but then I basically, air tightened my room, I put closed all the vents, just opened the windows, filtrated the the air in the room, but made sure I make sure that the air from my room is not mixing with the air from the rest of the household. And whenever I was in the common areas, I was wearing an N95 mask. Um, but I'm an adult and I could I could separate like this, like but but that that's somehow the idea to like being very aware that COVID is in the air and how to separate the air of one kid from the air of the other kids. Does anyone else have anything to add on that? So I would love to end with um, how we have been ending over the last couple of weeks with just everyone on this topic of schools, tiny humans, 
sharing a sentence or two with everybody watching at home that they want them to take away. We will start with Dr. Vipond and then I will just move through. Yeah, I mean, my big thing all the time is that policy is so important. This is a collective action problem. Unless we have good policy, we're gonna fail. And so I call on the, the province, um, I call on the Chief Medical Officer of Health to um, reverse all those decisions to allow uh, COVID to run rampant through the schools uh, in this intentionally cruel way. Um, kids deserve better and and their parents and their grandparents and their friends yeah and i would just like to say to every parent that's watching every guardian that's watching that's in this state of anxiety that you are not the only one we hear from lots of parents uh, and guardians every day that you know your concerns are shared by many um, especially if you're in communities where you feel like no one else is as concerned as you, you're you're not alone. I will also say that every child is entitled to access education. It is enshrined um, in the UN Declaration of the Rights of the Child. They're also entitled to safety. So this is definitely on policy and for moving the needle, public opinion can work um, to galvanize more political will so that this government can start and take responsibility for children in this province. Yes, I similarly, I would like to stress that COVID spread is caused by bad policy. Not that much by anti-vaxxers or non-vaccinated people, the root cause is bad policy. So we should, if we can, if we have any possibility, let's advocate for, for better policy and for policy of elimination. We can stop the COVID spread in our province. We can stop the COVID spread in our communities and we can have really COVID-free life. We don't have to live with COVID, really. We can, we can live without it and have normalcy back and everybody can be safe. Nobody needs to be sick anymore from COVID. Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to echo what everyone else is saying. Um, first of all, I don't think parents should feel guilty about whatever decision that they're making. Again, it, it's not on them. And um, they should be aware that there are measures that can be taken within schools to make the schools safer. This starts at the top with ventilation, with portable uh, HEPA filters. Um, and then rapid test, which I was going to talk about a bit more. Um, we can advocate for these to not just go to businesses, but to also go to schools so that parents are able to test their kids and get that information. And that also speaks to advocating for the need to getting quarantine back, contact tracing back, um, or instead of quarantine, doing a test to stay policy. But parents deserve the information um, from knowing, they deserve to know whether a child in their class, in their child, whether a person in their child's class has COVID and um, they, they sh to the extent that they can, please advocate for those things. Yeah, I first of all, I wanna echo everything that everyone else has said and, and just say also that um, COVID is a perfect example of how as with many um, major problems, when we look at circumstances like climate change or 
so many other things is that COVID has become a situation where we have continued to prioritize adults' desires over the needs of children. Um, children don't just want to go to school, children need to go to school, right? People may want to go to hockey games, they may want to go to bars, they may want to go to restaurants, but those aren't essential activities. And um, COVID policy in Alberta has continued to prioritize those, those desires of adults over the needs of children. Um, and I think that it's incumbent on all of us, whether we have children or not, um, to advocate for um, COVID policy that prioritizes the essential need of children to attend school. It, it shouldn't be um, that adults' needs are coming ahead of kids' needs, um, you know, and you shouldn't have to have children to care about what's happening with kids. I think the, the juxtaposition of uh, bars still being full and stadiums opening at 100% capacity with um, the images of our, our hospitals imploding, um, surgeries being canceled, including pediatric surgeries, and schools still not being safe a year and a half into the pandemic uh, is, is a really stark and horrible uh, image and comparison. And I think parents need to hold the government to account. So I call on all of you uh, to hold this government to account uh, to make sure that schools are safe places for our children. And in order to do this, we need to make sure our community is a safe place. Uh, so looking at putting in stronger measures in the community so that our children can go to school safely. Thank you once again to everyone who joined us today, from our panelists to the media and folks watching at home. We'll be back tomorrow for a look at masking and airborne transmission and ventilation. Um, and as we say goodbye today, I would just like to say thank you. Thank you to all Albertans who are doing their utmost to keep their communities safe. Unfortunately, we still have a long, intentionally cruel road ahead of us, thanks to government inaction which means we know we will not be able to end our briefings anytime soon. Up until today, our expenses have been entirely covered internally, but if you can financially contribute to our accessibility features, please check out the Protect Our Province Alberta Twitter for a link to our today launched GoFundMe campaign. All of our experts and technical team and communications are entirely composed of volunteers. Um, but nonetheless, we do still incur some hard costs to make these briefings happen, happen. So if you have the financial means to make a contribution, please do. If you don't, please know that you are making the ultimate contribution by joining us and hopefully sharing some of our messaging. I would also like to take a moment and update folks who join us regularly. Um, Eric Mulder, who joined us for our triage, transportation, and surgical cancellations briefing, tweeted last night that he received a phone call asking him to be at the hospital this morning to undergo his surgery. I personally have been thinking about him all day, and I know the entire Protect Our Province team is hoping that his procedure has been going exactly as planned today. Yesterday, we watched a cabinet two-step with no accountability for the ongoing suffering of Albertans. Today, our province reported its first pediatric death attributed to the virus. 
And I know we all want to say goodbye to COVID-19 plaguing our day-to-day lives. But I don't believe that any of us want to say goodbye the way that over 2,500 families in Alberta have had to. We deserve policy that will protect us, our tiny humans, all of our most vulnerable folks, every single Albertan. We are not disposable. None of us are. And so until next time, remember COVID-19 is airborne. Wear the best available mask you have access to and vaccinations really do stay save lives. Thank you and stay safe everyone. 